welcome everybody to PICPOD number 70. Um, this is a part of our series for the 2023 Pediatric Critical Care Com um, Society Conference in Edinburgh in, in October. Um, and our first guest is Cathy uh, MacDonald, who is a crisis and hostage negotiator from Scotland. Um, so, so Cathy, please could you, could you tell us some who you are and how, how you got to be speaking to us? Well, good. well, hello to you. Um, uh, and firstly, thank you for inviting me to join the podcast and you know preparation for the conference. Um, yeah, my name is Cathy MacDonald. Um, I did a full year, a full career as a police officer, and a massive part of that was within hostage and crisis negotiation. Um, it was one of those things, and anyone who's listening who just knows they're in the right job, you know that round peg and a round hole. Well, that was me. Um, negotiation was my world. I just connected to it. I understood it. I got it. And I loved every part of it. Um, looking back, there's grey hairs and wrinkles on the basis of it. But actually, all of that, were, you know, sort of shaped us as well. Um, I completed my career in 2015. And although I've stepped away from deploying operationally, I'm back into the world supporting kidnap for ransom incident managers. So really supporting people right around the, the world who work in high risk areas where kidnap has um, potential. So fast forward as to how I'm working with yourself is that um, one of your colleagues, Neil Spencer, he heard me um, delivering a, a presentation on um, Radio Scotland. And um, I think there had been a few um, communication challenges and he just dropped me a message and said, look, um, I wouldn't mind having a chat because I wonder if communication from a different world would be quite good to adopt, you know, within um, NHS. Um, when you were speaking on your interview, I immediately connected a few similarities. I wonder if we could do a bit of work together. And that is where it started. And since then, I've had the great privilege of working with a lot of your colleagues across country and really just helping connect, understand, communicate, and helping them have an easier life with communication. We've got enough tough stuff going on without communication getting in the way. So that's where I am. Um, thank you, Cathy. Um, the first question I want to ask is, and as I've been wondering about this, so we work in children's intensive care, mm -hmm. and there are three parties in our world. There is us, there's the patients, um, who comes in, who's usually often unconscious, uh, um, and attached to all our machines, and then there's the parents. Mm -hmm. So of those three, which one is the hostage, which one is the negotiator, yeah. and which one is the, if you like, the hostage taker? Um, I can't work out what I, what I am and which um, one is which. <laughs> I don't know if I put a label on any of them, but I guarantee at some point um, the professional healthcare, you know, um, whether you're a a paediatrician, whether you're an aesthetist, whatever else, you may feel that you're being hostage because you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You maybe have a, a condition that's challenging and deteriorating and you're doing everything you can and, and despite best efforts, you're still feeling stuck. So that will actually be a very similar experience to a hostage. The family will probably have the same feelings and the little one, I imagine, if they're um, uh, sedated or unconscious, they will be uh, oblivious to the whole thing. But um, I think that's probably more into the crisis negotiation um, rather than the hostage situation where, you know, we have things happen in life where emotion comes in and the higher the emotion, then the more difficult it is to function and have communication flow effectively. And within there, um, 
And uh, this is respectful to every single um, professional, whether you are police and negotiation, whether you are um, medical in any of your specialisms, you're trained, you're experienced, you're knowledgeable. But when the emergencies happen and when the tickly stuff happens, emotion comes in and operates. And we would teach our negotiators to run with that, learn to live with it and make emotion work for you because you cannot defy mother nature. She is going to make you feel a particular way. So how do you grab that and make it work for you? And emotion is the difference between becoming overwhelmed and going into personal crisis and being sharp and being able to do your job. So I think there will be times where we have all felt as if, you know, it's a little bit overwhelming um, and we need tactics to help us through that. So the scenario you gave me, yep, you could do a couple of analogies about the, the hostage situation, but I'm thinking more towards the crisis side of things and managing that emotion that makes all of us tick. The, the one thing that you have, the one word you haven't mentioned is uh, mediation so far. So is this the same thing as mediation that you, you talk about earlier on? There's a slight difference to it. Um, I guess so I, I was actually asked to mediate. When I finished my career, um, a friend who had a business asked me to mediate. And um, I actually found myself incredibly frustrated um, um, because I could not be being in the middle and being completely um, neutral um, I had to fight my own biases more than I found in negotiation. And I then realized that actually negotiation from the world that I was in, if you think of it, we are negotiating with someone, but we're not negotiating um, the two sides in the same way as a mediator. A mediator is almost completely impartial in the middle and being a, a conduit for everybody else. And negotiation, um, although I would have said that's what I thought my role was, after looking at mediation, I realised I wasn't. I actually sat more on one side. For example, Harish, if you were um, in captivity and I was working hard to get you home to your family, I would be working with the people that um, were, were holding you and another a uh, number of other areas. But I would be working to my agenda and I would be trying to connect, understand, influence and change behaviour and get you home. That's not a mediator. A mediator does not have that luxury. So I found it incredibly um, uh, difficult to maintain that impartiality and not put my tuppence worth in. So as a result, although I'm a, a negotiator, I've discovered I'm a rubbish mediator. Um, I did not want to I, 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 I did not want to sit there and be impartial. I actually wanted to take both our heads and knock them together and go, if you're arguing over this, if you've got a business issue over this, I wish you could have a look into the real world and see what the real troubles are. Um, and that's what was inside me. I had to fight all the time. So uh, I don't know if that explains it exceptionally well, but there's my take on it, Harish. No, that's that's very important. Uh, uh, as, as as you say, I think it's a situation where often you don't, you can't remain neutral. You, yeah. you have to sort of within limits take sides. Yeah, that, that was the temptation. Mediators are incredible. They have a great skill, great ability to retain that impartiality. And um, yeah, yeah, I take my hat off to them. And there's also the situation where you can't remain neutral, where in our world, there are two options. One is doing something and one is doing nothing. You have to make an active choice as well. Yeah. Um, so being in the middle and saying, well, let's talk about it more. And prolonging things is actually prolonging one of the sides, isn't it? So, so is, um, 
there is there is no passive choice sometimes both choices have to be active which makes things even more complicated it is and then it's down to sort of proportionality risk assessment and working out that maybe both situations are horrible but one of them has to take precedence isn't it and yeah. um uh, or both are positive in which case that's a lovely you know a better situation but yeah um so we have we come across um situations in our work where where parents have extremely fixed views mm -hmm. um and we're all used to communicating in these extreme situations where parents have have critically ill children and it's extremely emotional and difficult but this is what what we do and 99 times 999 times out of a thousand it works beautifully and the parents and us have a have a good relationship and sometimes we come across situations where there are fixed and entrenched views which conflict with what in our world is reality yeah mm -hmm. Um, so we have the medical facts that this is what is happening, and yet that that conflicts with the perceived facts or beliefs by parents, which conflicts with what we say is yeah. with our factual world. Um, help us solve that. I'm sure there's not a there's not a simple solution to that, but oh, but but how can we uh, approach that situation where you know, firmly held beliefs conflict with um, demonstrable facts. Okay. Well, this is actually one of the more difficult ones to do when someone has a very fixed belief. And um, sometimes I'm asked, what are the little ninja mind tricks that allow you to change somebody's belief? And I have to deliver the reality that you never change someone's mind. You never change somebody's belief. If anyone's going to change their mind or change their belief, they do it themselves. So by presenting a lot of facts and presenting your findings and your beliefs to someone who has a strong belief, it will make no difference whatsoever other than potentially strengthen their resolve to stick by their own belief. So how do you go about that? Um, a little bit of what I'll speak about at the conference is connection. That's what the conference is all about. And I'll speak about um, connection between us. Um, it's easy when it, we, we like the people or we like the, the, the topic. It's not as easy when we either don't like the people involved or we don't like the topic. And um, where that all comes from is our individuality. And if you think of it, Patrick, um, you and Harish and everyone who's listening to this, the day you were born, you were born into a unique bubble that is going to be yours forever until you take this final breath on the planet. And you're in it right now. That bubble is yours and yours alone. No one else is in there with you. And that bubble is full of who you are from your personality, your DNA, who's influenced you over the years. Every single moment of every day that you have encountered has shaped you in that bubble into what you value in life, what you believe, what you need and what you want. And if you think about anything you've done today, anything you've thought about, it all falls into, woven into values, beliefs, needs and wants. Now, some of them will be incredibly strongly embedded because of your experiences or because of what you were brought up with. And some of them you've maybe invested all your time, your effort, your beliefs into. Um, and it's not until they're challenged that we ever, ever go down a path of wondering. So what could I, I think here maybe a suggestion of if you have that situation is 
not to discredit anybody else's belief because they are the way they are and they have that belief because of that life experience. And here's a thing between disagreement and conflict. There are 8 billion different people on this planet. We have to be able to disagree with each other and that might come down to our very strong beliefs. So do we, conf can do, do we conflict and fight about it or do we try to understand? And whenever I hear anyone um, speaking about conflict, I'll say, look, conflict is a conscious choice to fight about differences. That's it. So are the family going to fight with you as a medical professional? Well, if that's what they normally do and that's their behaviour that normally gets them what they want, they will. But are you going to fight with them as a health professional back to the family? And um, the chances are you'll try not to, but you may find that that's what you want to do or you, you default to. My suggestion is appropriate curiosity will will um, save you from having to fight. It might get down there eventually, but in the initial stages, how come? And taking time to say that belief is almost completely opposite to our belief through our experience and knowledge. But I can see it's important to you. Please, will you explain it to me? Will you take me through why that belief is, you know, um, uh, is so important and why you want us to make decisions based on it? Now, here's the thing about strong beliefs. When we ask somebody to explain it, they will take you back to either the source of the belief or it will go back to the point where they maybe don't know where that belief came from. And how do you do that? You effectively become a three-year-old and you just go, how come, how come, how come, why, but why, but why? And if even you want to do this on your own, I think of a belief that you have and wonder, where did that come from? Why do I have that belief? What's in it for me to hold that belief? There has to be an advantage, otherwise I wouldn't hold on to it. What is in it for me? And why do I believe that? Why has that shaped it? And by the time you work out yourself, you realise that Either you realise why you have that belief or you realise that it's maybe built on faith and faith alone and there's nothing specifically evidence-based behind it. When you take someone to that point in a belief, they need space, they need time and they need dignity to explore that themselves. You will never ever change somebody's belief. They change their own. In order to do that, they need that dignity, space and vulnerability to be able to do it and a dignified out. Culturally, we don't like people who change their minds. And um, I mean, just look at the, the political thing. If a political party changes their mind, well, on TV, you've got everybody else going, there are U-turns, you can't trust them and all that sort of stuff. Well, actually, that's sort of in our culture as well. We don't like people changing their minds. So in order to ask somebody to change their stance, even if it's just a little bit, we have to give them a dignified reason to do it. And that is sometimes really difficult. So I'm sorry if this question has led to a whole presentation or a lecture here. But what we have in simple terms is strong beliefs are um, sensitive and tickly things to deal with. And in order to allow a slight change in any of them, we have to explore the why. And it might be helpful for the family to understand your why. And um, you will only be able to put that in once you have given them the time and space and let them know they have been heard, understood, respected, and what they have to say is important and not dismissed. Easier I, said than done. One of the interesting things I think you mentioned is that uh, there's got to be time to save face. I think often parents, uh, in my experience, we found that you know people have very strong beliefs around. Mm -hmm. and you talk to them and then you let them go away and then mm -hmm. they come back. And often they, they, they feel that they've lost face, but 
they want to make a U-turn, but it's, it's a, they, may, they may feel very embarrassed by the whole process. And you've got to sort of somehow bring them into the fold to allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, uh, nobody's intransigent. Certainly when they have their own little baby or child there, they want to make the right decision. And their okay. initial initial sort of uh, intransigent views gradually over time change. Uh, because, and that, as you rightly say, I think just takes time, doesn't it? And you mentioned four dimensions of values, beliefs, needs, and wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been trying to think about whether they are ordered in any hierarchy, but they're probably not. Is that right, Kathy? Um, so, 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 so they can all prop prop each other up. Now, mm-hmm. in our world, the wants the the wants are clear. You know, I want my my child to survive that's that's uh that's everyone has that extremely strongly and also the need is i need my child to survive yeah so the other two the values and beliefs sometimes i feel they they um fall into line because of the wants and needs rather than be separate um and people hang hang on to values and beliefs because of their needs and wants, so they're not separated. They're all inextricably linked. They are linked, and um, you will have some beliefs that stand on their own. You'll have some values, needs, and wants that stand on their own, but quite often they'll be mixed together. And if we take it even to, and when I'm teaching master classes, I usually speak about coffee because it's a very simple. Um, thing that most people will have at some point um you know a hot drink to start the day type thing and on that basis i'll say right um uh, everyone who's had a a hot drink this morning and most hands go up and i said well even on that basis think about why you had that drink did you need it did you have the physiological need for caffeine did you just want that drink did it represent something other than a hot drink. For example, I have my coffee in the morning because that's the only calm part of the day I have before the craziness starts. That's when I have my own space. So that coffee becomes more of a value. It represents something more than just a hot drink. And then um, within the medical um, profession, I have had um, people saying, well, uh, my coffee, I don't particularly need it or want it at that time, but I believe if I don't have a coffee then, I will not get one till the end of the day. So I just have one. So if you think of it, although this is very much more simplistic than the, you know, the, the situation you spoke of, um, Patrick, and it just gives you an example that our motivations are a little bit different. Now, is it possible to have to have someone who has all of them? Yeah, someone could um, have a physiological need for coffee at the same time as it representing something differently for them. So a value and a need is all linked in together there. Now, that's just coffee. Take everything in life and you'll find that they are a lot of things intrinsically and you can't separate them and then sometimes you might not even be able to that bubble of values beliefs needs and wants i always speak about as that's the stuff that's important what's important to you is in your bubble the things that motivate you but i separate them into values beliefs needs and wants simply to highlight that one person's deep-seated belief can be somebody else's whimsical want or can actually be nothing at all And if anyone has ever perhaps, you know, unintentionally offended somebody by flippantly throwing away a remark of fun only to realise that it landed very severely with someone else because they had a a strong belief on something, 
they will know that even through good intentions, we can upset or we can conflict. We have differences in our bubbles all the time. And uh, um, these things are, coming back to your original question about, you know, there are four um, set things with the values, beliefs, needs and wants, but yes, they can be intrinsically linked and we may not even be able to separate them or understand why. To keep it simple, what are the things that are important to you? And that's how I would look at it. So what are the things that are important to that family? Their child, their child's well-being, um, uh, the um, having an influence, feeling in control, actually, a massively part, uh, uh, important part is feeling that they are in control, that they have a choice. And if you think of it, that whole situation with their child coming into hospital means that their choice and their position as a, as a, a parent has been compromised. So um, there's a whole load of things going on with that family that's important to them. So how do we work with that? We find the connection because the health professionals will be, they want the child to survive. They want it to be well. They want that child as well. It's important to them that a the child goes back to their family as well as they possibly can. So finding the commonality between everybody to say, right, this is what we all want, but we've got slight differences that are getting in the way but come back to what we all are working towards and we can't lose sight of that. And that will keep the conversation um, as buoyant and alive as it can be. And we try really hard um, to communicate with all our parents. And we do, you know, we, I don't think I've ever used the words you're using or had them as clear in my mind as um, the, the concepts which you're using. Um, but, but I do recognise some of those strategies. Uh, but sometimes it just doesn't work. Um, how do we move forward when it doesn't work? Is any is anything you can you can help us with when it, when it's becoming more and more entrenched, and those and the dignified out which you talked about it becomes further and further away? How do we go back and how do we um, come back together when the things are becoming further and further apart? Yeah. I mean, if you can keep communication going between two parties, that is the biggest thing because that's your bridge. That's your bridge to say, no matter what happens, let's keep communication open. If that fails, if it comes to the point where um, the we and, and you know we'll want to avoid the things that we don't like, and it might be that um, all the parties want to avoid each other. And actually, that comes back to yourself, Harish. You mentioned about mediation, and that's probably the right time to bring in a mediator who can act as that connection between the two parties as much as possible I'd say keep communication open keep that flowing try to understand each other's perspective and if there is a barrier and um, sometimes chipping away at that barrier just makes it bigger and bigger and bigger if it's possible to say that particular thing that particular topic is stopping us speaking about all the other things can we park that at the moment at that moment is a very important thing to say because you're not dismissing something that's key. But you might be able to say, can we park that at the moment so we can at least talk about the other things? And if you talk about the other things that aren't as difficult, it may keep you connected. It may keep that communication flowing and you'll be on a, a, a more even keel to then return to the thing that's getting in the way. And as I say, always go back to try and understand and then work away. If you work together, if, if you and the family can work together to say, okay, we know we all want the same thing, but we see different ways. 
how do we actually work this out then as a team? How do we do it rather than fighting with each other and becoming adversaries? How do we work together as a team to come up with options? And that's the type of negotiation we were involved with. There's a, a negotiation called positional negotiation, and that's the type you would do if you went to buy a family car. You'd go in, you'd want to buy the car for 5,000, the salesperson would want you to buy it for 10,000, and somewhere along the line, you would negotiate to the point where you'd somewhere in between. The future relationship of between you and that salesman perhaps isn't important. So you can go in as hard as you want with your negotiation and effectively fight every part, every penny of that. And when you walk away and you don't need to see each other again, that's okay. But that's not effective negotiation where relationships are required. Relationships break down. So working together as a team to say, we might not see eye to eye on everything, but if we can work as a team to try and work together, that's the best option. If there's still an impossibility, Patrick, you said, what happens when it completely fails? Um, that's where you end up having to get other parties involved. Now, whether that is mediation or whether that goes to the courts, the solicitor and all of that sort of thing, then it may be that that's required. And I think we've all seen that within the news from a civilian perspective, looking in, we've seen uh, reports on the news where there has been a, a professional um, difference between what the medical side felt and the family felt, and they actually needed to go to the court to make that decision. Yeah. Um, and after all of that is done, I think the one I saw, the family and the medical people then talked again, which was really quite helpful. Down that route, yeah. and that's reality. So tell um, me, what happens when uh, parents re recognise that uh, the professionals now are not all singing from the same hymn sheet, and there is conflict within the professionals themselves? Uh, do we have to sort our our own house up first before we approach the family, or do we let multiple views be inflicted on the family? Again, that's going to be a, a judgment call. There's part of we like people to be human and authentic. That that appeals. That's a connector. But when it comes to health professionals. We also look for you to have, a, um, um, we need to be able to lean, and I'm saying we from a, a patient perspective, we need to be able to lean on you and have confidence. So again, a judgment call when medical professionals disagree, is that being human and that I can appreciate the difficulty and the authenticity that they've been open with me? Or does that mean I can't rely on you and I can't trust you? And that's going to be a judgment call. It will be different for different people. I know that I would appreciate my GP telling me, I'm not too sure about that, but I'm going to find out. But I have a feeling that another member of my family, if they heard that, they would immediately say, I don't trust them. And that's the intricacy of dealing with human beings. We're all different and our perspective is different. So I don't have an absolute definitive answer for you on that one. I would say that the more you can agree on and sort out initially would be better um, before you present a family. Um, you certainly don't want to present a family with a feuding and arguing um, profession, but it might be good to say, well, this is all the things we agree on. We do have slight differences from our own professions in terms of this and this, and it's right that we discuss these slight differences with you. The, the resolution has to happen within the professionals first before the patient can move forward. And I mm -hmm. think it's uh, something that, uh, often does happen. Uh, you know, I have been in a situation where uh, there are different opinions within the team. 
And mm -hmm. I think one of the things that has to happen is that the lead consultant then has to sort of arrive at a at a decision and sort of say, this is what we're going to do as far as this particular patient is concerned, because it's the only way moving forward at that family. Yeah. And if you've got a system that already supports when there is disagreement and, you know, between the um, the departments or between the, the professions, well, here's the decision. This is how it happens. You already have a form that works. Then at least you have that in place. Um, but what I will say is um, sometimes, particularly if we're in high powered positions, um, it, it takes a lot of bravery to consider that your way is not maybe the right way. So it could be the more established, the more aged, the more experienced people are not willing to open their ears to younger new ideas. Why? Because we, be we our beliefs are our beliefs and we're very strong with them and we'll defend them and we'll work with them. And we don't want to hear that somebody else has a better idea. And that's why sometimes change is so difficult. I think that we don't want to change because we're settled where we are. And realistically, and I'm in this position, the same as many aging people, is that it's more difficult to change as you get older. The reception and the, the desire to change, it's like, oh, no, please don't. No more change. But um, if that's impacting on profession, we need personal integrity to say, actually, I need to be open to new ideas. And even that one thing, if every single person who had a strong belief that was conflicting with another, if every person actually said, actually, why do I really believe that my way is the only way? Why am I not open to another idea? That would be a good self-question to have because you might find it's ego, status, and all of that, and nothing to do with the well-being of the people involved. And that's a tough question. And that's why I would say do it privately to yourself and then be open that changing your mind is not a weakness. Changing and offering um, a, a different approach, airspace, is worth exploring. So I think we're getting into culture now. We're getting into um, uh, attitudes. Um, um, but it, it also, and I see it with other professions as well, new people coming in cannot wait to try stuff out and they don't give the same value to experience and you know age either. So it's again, the generations of different professions opening up to consider the perspectives of others. Now you'll have individuals who definitely do that and they are great. They're the people to piggyback on. How do they do it and how do they make it so um, easy um, to do? And that might help those that find it difficult. Don't know if I've gone round the houses with that one a little bit, maybe, but um, I hope I've I hope I've conveyed my my perspective in in a, an appropriate and and respectful way. Do you think conf conflicts arise often because uh, the parents perceive uh, professionals often being arrogant? Because I think uh, perception of arrogance is often I, I've, I've certainly heard it from parents many a times that mm -hmm. we were talked down to or we were not respected etc and how often have you come across that as a sort of a problem that has produced conflict yeah there is again it's that can be but it can also be the expectation some parents might come in to expect that because they have a bias they understand that's what to expect and therefore they see it even if it's not obvious it's not really there but then there are definitely times where concise, straightforward, factual talking against a time scale when you absolutely know what you're doing and you post it and to say, I would love to sit here for an hour and explain everything. 
um, uh, demands, patient demands means I can't do that, but here's what I can offer you in the space of five minutes. Or um, I don't know how it works in your world. So now I'm, I'm you know, I'm creating uh, ideas to give examples with. But there's always ways around. You can signpost your intentions so that somebody can look beyond your behaviour. Um, they can look beyond the straight talking. They can look beyond that because you, they know your intentions are honourable and correct. So sometimes we have to just put a little statement out there to say, here's my intention. We would do it. An example maybe from my own world. If we were working with... Um, uh, somebody overseas, for example, whose culture and language was entirely different to ours, we would not pretend to know. It didn't matter if we'd researched it or not. I would never pretend to know how they tick. But what I would say is, look, I would like our discussions to be respectful and um, positive. And that's the way I conduct myself all the time. But if I say or do anything that strikes you as unusual, that um, is unfamiliar to you, then please tell me and educate me. Correct me as I go along. So what I'm signposting there is everything I'm saying comes from a good place. Please don't mistake it as anything else. I'm almost warning them. Don't twist my words into something they're not, please. Um, so a signpost is quite often um, a handy tactic. And I wonder whether that could be used in that sort of situation. One of the things I remember doing was always a lot of the decisions were made during the ward round. So then what you would do is you turn around to the family and so forth. So looking at what I'm going to do is finish the ward round and then we'll have plenty of time to sit down and over a cup of tea, we can have a, a longer discussion. And that often sort of uh, diffuses a lot of uh, angst that family may have. Yeah. I mean, if you can wrap reasons around something that's important to them or they can relate to, for example, um, it's important that I see all the patients first thing. They take priority in the morning and then after that, I'm going to have time to speak to you mm. rather than just I'm going to do my ward round. A ward round might be, they, they may not know what that is and they will create what you're doing in there and may have a, a thing to think, oh, they've prioritised going round a ward to me. So I would probably want to weave in something that they can relate to and imagine is important, which is my patients are really, my, the welfare of my patients has to be first thing in the morning and I look after them and I make sure they're going to be okay. And then um, I look after families. So I'll come and see you afterwards. So something like that would be effective, but exactly what you were doing, um, but it's worth thinking about the words and the explanation. Yeah. Um, the precise words are so important. Um, I, I remember talking to a, a family um, whose child had significant brain trauma. And I I said a few times the words, there is damage to the brain, and they just listened. And then I would use the words brain damaged, and they just exploded into tears. And for them, damage to the brain was different to brain damage. And afterwards, reflecting on that, I was just absolutely, you know, it's the same words, isn't it? It's just slightly um, rearranged. It's, oh, it's amazing yeah. how some families need those those phrases to be so clear. If words were, if words only meant what the dictionary definition defined them as, communication would be so much easier. <laughs> but they're not, and there are certain words that we know will work. And um, you know, if I say um, we know that we like the words honesty and openness and willing and um, a request to help, all of that is approachable words. And then the ones that we absolutely don't like. But there are ones that you just cannot possibly know 
should not have created a situation does take it immediately, learn from it, and then revamp it. So there we go. Well, what, what, what's interesting, I had a very similar problem. I was, in fact, teaching uh, one of the trainees about ventilation. And uh, parents were sitting down there, and I said, would you mind if I just teach the trainee about the ventilation around? And uh, then I went on to start talking about dead space, which is oh. a respiratory thing. Uh, which has nothing to do with the patient as such. And the parents just walked away crying. So I had to rush over and I sort of said, oh, what's happened? And they said, you were talking about dead space. Oh my God, yeah. That was just about the machine rather than the child. The child your little one's doing very well. But it made me realize that they latch on to every single word that you talk around the, the patient. And it's so important to make sure that certain conversations are hidden from the family. I've never done it since. Uh, if I want to do it, I go to the lab and sort of talk it over with the trainees in the lab rather than next to the patient. But it's for the um, for the listeners, Kathy went a little bit pale when Harris mentioned mentioned dead space. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because for a layperson that means something of a difference. Um you mentioned just before Kathy you mentioned um the cases in the media, right? So that's the absolute tip of the iceberg for us. Uh, in the UK PICU, we have around 20,000 admissions per year nationally. Yeah. Um, and we think about eight of them get to court. And of those eight, maybe one or two per year end up as as media stories. Yeah. Um, as someone who is, you know, hugely skilled in conflict and, and resolution um, and, isn't involved in this, you know, with knowledge that there'll be a significant number of our of our listeners who have been involved, will be involved or are involved in these situations. Mm -hmm. What what's your feeling from a bit of a outside perspective of these cases? Uh, to be honest, uh, the ones I've seen, I just sit with sadness that it's got to that stage. I feel for both sides, having been a uh, front facing. Um, uh, uh, professional within the public space as a police officer um, I can absolutely relate to how demanding it is you try your best you do what is absolutely um, authentic and the best decision at the time and all that sort of stuff but sometimes um, hindsight views it differently or other people have a different opinion so I feel a, an affinity a connection to the health professionals the family I feel a sadness for them as well, that they're stuck in that place. And it really is. It's a bit of sadness more than anything. And whether it's the way I'm wired, whether it's my, my training, I don't know. But I'm seldom judgmental. I seldom ever find myself giving an opinion and a negative opinion on someone. I'm actually more intrigued and I wonder why and I'm sad to see. So I don't know if I'm the right typical person to say, how do you view that? Um, uh, but yeah, sadness, I think, is the feeling I have. A disappointment, sadness, and I, I feel for both sides. Tell me, do you ever work closely with ethicists, people who are involved in uh, evaluating ethics of care, ethics in medicine, uh, or ethics in other areas that you work in? No, I've never been involved in that at all. Not at all. Because it's something that uh, we, t we tend to. I like that idea. I have never heard of an ethics team. We've never had one. 
Um, um, so no, I like the idea. Um, that's interesting. In, in the hospital, these are independent. It's an independent team who are separate from clinical clinicians, and they would discuss the matter from a whole spectrum of areas, and perhaps not necessarily make decisions, but at least help the clinicians arrive at the right sort of decisions. Uh, and is that found to be really helpful? Uh, do your colleagues find that a really helpful? Um, uh, I think it's mixed, actually. I think, I think um, um, they don't, they often don't say what to do. They often say what is ethical and what is not ethical. Um, every time I've taken a patient to ethics committee, um, if they were to tell me that my plan is unethical, I would be utterly devastated because then yeah. my whole you know, ethical structure would would be challenged. Mm -hmm. um, and so far they haven't, luckily. So so it, it, it can feel like a bit of a rubber stamp, um, but it's good to think of it from that angle, from purely from an ethics angle. Well, I guess if you're going to use that, you have to be open to the idea that they might come back with something that you don't like. And that's actually uh -huh. going into, if you think of the strong belief thing that we spoke about earlier on, um, if if that would be a, a return that you, you know, if that was their comment to you, Patrick, oh my word, you would need time, space and dignity to even get your head around that, especially when everything ethically had just been thrown up in the air, you know, that you've invested yeah. um, all your life in. So I can understand how that would be very hard hitting. Um, this is true, but actually that's okay because these are big decisions and when we're making them, it's okay to be challenged. It's okay to be, to be scrutinized. Um, and that's okay. I'd much rather be scrutinized and then come to the correct decision than than just do it solo and not have that wider input. And I think the logical brain says that, but the feeling <laughs> part says something different. Um, 100% yeah, yeah. logical at all times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, everybody, it's like feedback. Everybody says, yes, yes, feedback to my friend, and I want that. But then when it happens, it's a horrible feeling. You know, it's, we understand the value of it, but the feeling that goes with it is not always, you know, uh, helpful. That's mother nature at work, isn't oh, it? When you, get, when you do a talk and you get 31 excellence and one satisfactory, it's like, oh. I'm devastated by that satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's our default to look at the, the negative, default. isn't it? Mother Nature, I keep blaming her. Indeed. Um, Kathy, um, thank you so much. That, that, that was really fascinating. Um, thank you. Some amazing, amazing insights from a, from a world which is both alien and familiar to us simultaneously. Um, I'll be I'm really excited to um, hear your talk in a couple of weeks' time. Um, and thank you very much for for joining us this, this morning. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for um, sharing your time with me, both of you. Thank you, Kathy. Lovely to see you.